back with you today as we continue a mini-series of three weeks. We're looking at a series that we're calling Changed Minds, Changed Lives. Now, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first four verses of this passage. And what I want us to see this morning is the way to have a changed life is to really have a changed focus. Something I've noticed, you can see athletes where they appear to have equal talent. Their gifts, their strengths are evident, and yet one raises head and shoulders above the other athlete. Why? Many coaches will tell you that's because of focus. The athlete who succeeds and excels is the athlete who has the proper focus. They're looking at the big picture. They're seeing a goal, and they're moving toward that goal. I think that's true in the business world. I think that's true in many facets of life. But I think as we come to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we find the Word of God share with us that that is certainly true when it comes to our Christian life. If you want to have a Christian life, that is doing great things for God, you're going to have a Christian life that has the proper focus. You're not going to be distracted by the things around you that can draw your focus away. You're going to have that focus fixed like a laser on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, notice the text says the following. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. That's what this passage wants us to focus on, these truths. So what I'd like to do with you this morning is unpack these truths. See what the Word of God is saying to us by drilling down on these truths. Now, we begin with this truth. Priorities will drive our choices. If you have your priorities out of whack, you're going to make the wrong choices. You're going to go along with the flow. You're going to do whatever seems right in the moment. You're not going to be guided by God's truth. You're going to be guided by your whims by what society tries to impress upon you, you aren't going to be guided by God's truth. The Word of God tells us to have a focus that pursues the things above. I love the book of Colossians. When you look at the first chapter, the first chapter focuses on the sovereign power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us who He is, the sustainer, the creator, the one who is absolute sovereign. The second chapter warns us that we can lose our focus on Christ by getting bogged down in the things of this world that tell us that we need to change ourselves from the outside in, rather than looking to Jesus and allowing the one who is sovereign and Lord to change us from within. 
As a matter of fact, Paul goes into a great bit of detail in that second chapter, talking about the transformation that comes by being raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, look with me at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, when it says this, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We are cleansed. We are raised with Christ to walk in a newness of life. This is what the Word of God reminds us of. But then, right on the heels of these truths, the Word of God calls us in chapter 3, to, in light of being raised with Christ, to seek the things above. Now, what does it mean to be raised with Christ? This is such a foundational truth for us. Being raised with Christ means there is a new man, a new person, a new nature that God has given us that is spiritually alive. Prior to being raised with Christ, we cannot do anything but sin. We are entrapped by the sinful nature that characterizes who we are. But when we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we're delivered from that. And we're given the opportunity to be raised with Christ in a new life. And we are able to focus on new things. The Word of God is telling us in this passage that thing, that major thought process that we're to focus on are the things above. The things that pertain to God, the things that pertain to heaven. And notice the Word of God in telling us to seek the things above, it's, it's calling us to stack our priorities toward those heavenly things. If we were to translate this literally, what the Word of God would really be saying to us is keep seeking the things above. You know, something that I am becoming more and more convinced of is there's precious little except our salvation in the Christian life that is one and done. Once you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have a relationship with Him. Settled. Done. That's one and done. But our sanctification process, where we start to move toward greater spiritual maturity, that is an ongoing battle that we all must face. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? And we have to run that race with endurance, and we have to make decisions on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. This is what God calls us to in His Word when He says, keep seeking the things above. God wants us to look at the things above and make that something that in the moment I decide I will seek the things above rather than the things that are offered to me in this world and in this life. See, the world screams at us, calling us to adopt its thought processes and its values. God is saying to us with all the authority of his word as God, don't buy into those things. Buy in to heavenly things. Seek the things above. And notice the Word of God goes on to describe what is above. In that first verse, he goes on to say, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
As I'm focusing on heavenly things, sometimes that can be a little nebulous to us as believers. We think about heaven, the things above, and we wonder, what exactly am I supposed to think about? Am I supposed to think about the pearly gates? Am I supposed to think about the description of heaven that I find in Revelation? What God is calling us to is to think about who is in heaven and who brings us into heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's to be the focal point of our lives. We are to look to him and make him the core value, the core focus of our life. So when the Word of God talks about how how Christ is seated at the right hand of God, what is it expressing to us? Here's what it's expressing. Just three passages of Scripture that are among many that I want us to think about pertaining to Christ being seated at the right hand of God. The first passage is from Hebrews, and it shares with us that Christ completely cleansed me of my sins. As I think about things above, I can look at the opportunity to sin and say, wait a minute, I've been delivered from that. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He delivered me from that sin. I am not bound by it. The writer of Hebrews says the following. He, referring to Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe with the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The idea is Christ dealt with our sins, perfectly paid for our sins. And to demonstrate his victory over sin and the power that we share with him over sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Another passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. The scripture asks, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Look at this, who is at the right hand of the Father. Again, the theme of victory over sin. But then this is added to it, who is indeed interceding for us. You know what that says to me? When I am struggling, when I'm going through a difficult time, I can focus on heavenly things rather than the difficulties that I'm going through because Christ is interceding for me before the throne of grace. That's what I'm to focus on. That's what I'm to keep seeking. Not buying in to the foolishness of this world, but looking with focus to the things of heaven. Another passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. This passage of Scripture shares with us the power that is available to us. As believers, God promises to empower us to live a new life. You know, I often hear people say when I share the gospel with them, I could never live the life. I can't live a Christian life. And you know, they're absolutely right. We can't. But thanks be to God, he gives us the power to live the Christian life, and it's shared with us in this passage. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, it says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward who? Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And what is that working of his great might like? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
That's what we're to focus on. Can you see how keeping that kind of focus can be a game changer for us as believers? If we don't get bogged down in the struggles and in the values of this world, and we keep our head by being focused on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that can be transformative. That can open our eyes to so much more that God has for us. You know, in the previous church uh, that I served 25 years ago, I've been at my current church for 25 years, um, there was a man in our church who had horrible cataracts. He had to stop driving. He was unable to read a document without one of the jeweler's loops that they use to, to look at diamonds, and we used that to read a page. And the cataracts were progressing to where he was going to go blind. Well, finally, he decided, I'll have cataract surgery. So, in one day, he went in, had the cataracts removed, and he could drive, and he could see clearly, and maybe some of the people that he looked at thought, you know, thought, they're pretty good looking. He looked at and went, meh, you know. Maybe some of the people he looked at, he said, boy, you've aged. <laughs> maybe when he looked in the mirror, he thought, man, I've aged. I don't know. But it was clarifying. It opened his eyes. He was able to see. He was able to focus. And you know, as believers, I think this is so true of us. When we get the right focus, it opens the doors to a deeper walk with God. We can grow in our walk with Him. And yet, so often we settle for a lack of focus. Look at what the Scripture also teaches us. We come to the second verse, and we see, according to the second verse, that we are to prefer the things above to the things of this earth. Now, look at verse 2 with me, and notice what it says. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are earth. Where the first verse says, keep seeking those things, verse 2 is really talking about settling in, locking our minds on these things. This is produced by constantly seeking the things above in the moment, making the right choices. But as that becomes a pattern in our lives, we settle into it. That becomes our default thought process. Rather than struggling with it, that will be our immediate response. I'm going to set my mind on the things above. I'm settling in to this kind of thinking. And what the Word of God is telling us in this passage is, I am to strive toward this. I am to come to the place to where I keep my mind on these things. I will disallow even good things to take my eyes off of Jesus. You know, some of you may know this about me. I love fishing. As a matter of fact, I drug a bass boat from Chicago to uh, Cape Cod and had a blast going out with the grandkids doing some fishing in the boat. But invariably, when you're fishing, and if there are other people around you fishing, you strike up a conversation because that's why they call it fishing and not catching. There are those periods of time where you're just waiting for something to happen. And more often than not, the person that I'm fishing beside 
will say, well, what do you do? And of course, after he's used some pretty salty language and things like that, I'll say, well, I'm a pastor. Oh. <laughs> and then I can't count how many times I've heard this. Well, I don't really go to church. I figure it's better to be sitting in a boat thinking about the Lord than to be in church thinking about fishing. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Each time it's as if it's the most original thing that's ever been said. But I thought about that. How often do we as Christians allow something that's benign, good, in and of itself, fishing is good, how often do we allow that to take our eyes off of God and become something that supplants who God is? Look carefully at the second verse and notice it says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. Now I find the choice of words in this passage intriguing. Rather than the word of God saying, set your mind on the things of the world, you know, of, of, above and not on the things of this world, it says the things of this earth. World has a negative connotation in the scripture, but earth is benign. It's the things of everyday life, the material things that surround us. And so what the word of God is telling us in this passage is, don't allow even the everyday things, even the benign things, the good things, to take your focus, to take your eyes off of the things of God. This life can become our focus. We can get bogged down in circumstances, in trials, in hobbies. We can allow our priority system to flip-flop and allow things like work, relationships, plug in your favorite value, those can become our God. It is so easy for us to focus on the material, the seen, forgetting about the unseen. And God is calling us to think differently. He wants us to set our mind on the things that are above. The Apostle Paul, through so much of his ministry, suffered. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was persecuted tirelessly. Talk about something that could take your focus off of the things of God. And yet, he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Word of God reminds us that there is so much more to our lives than even the struggles and the trials that we face. What God wants us to do is think about the eternal weight of glory. In fact, that text goes on and talks about this. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. In other words, the material things around me of this earth, they're here and then they're gone. Or the other way around, they're here and I'm gone. Something we need to remember is there are no U-Hauls behind hearses, right? When we die, everything material that we have had on this earth, gone. So God wants us to think about the things that are 
unseen because the things that are seen are transient and the things that are unseen are eternal. What have you set your focus on? On the seen or the unseen? Because listen, if I am looking to the things of this earth, the seen, and building my life on it, making that the priority system that I operate with, that's where my treasure is. That's where my heart, my affection will be. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6 reminded us of this in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said this in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, and this is a strong word of contrast, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now listen, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also. question I ask myself when I read passages like this and Colossians, where's my treasure? What am I treasuring? What are the things that I value deeply? God is calling me to value the things that are above, the unseen, and not get distracted by these things that are seen and transient. Then we come to the third verse of this passage, and what we find in verses 3 and 4 is this. We have a perspective that will motivate us to seek the things that are above when we really think about these points that are made in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, we're reminded to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, because verse 3 tells us we are protected from sin by the person of Christ. Look at what the scripture says. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now what does the scripture mean by you have died? Again, we go back to chapter 2 where it talks about the fact that when I trust Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, I die to sin and I am made alive to Christ. The way this is framed in the original language is profound. The fact that I have died with Christ is put in a tense in the original language that reminds us that this is completed action in the past, but it has ongoing results into the future. So here's the idea. I have died with Christ, but I continue to be dead to sin and alive to Christ, and it affects that transformative process where God transforms me into the very image of Christ. That's what the passage is driving at in this when it says, for you have died. But it doesn't stop there. The text goes on to talk about the fact that my life is hidden with Christ in God. I have died. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin live in it any longer? That's the perspective. That's the thought process that's being communicated by you have died. But then, when we look at the last part of this, when it reminds us that our life is hidden with 
Christ in God, it's communicating something else. Not only have I died to sin, I've been made alive together with Christ, but the text is telling me that he is my security. He is the one who holds me in right relationship with God. Isn't it comforting to know that our salvation does not rest in our own personal performance? That we cannot lose our relationship with God by messing up. I'm thankful that when God saves me, he saves me for good. And what's being communicated by this text when it says that my life is hidden with God in Christ? Think about the century in which this was written, the first century. When somebody had something valuable, they didn't have a bank. They didn't have a safety deposit box. What did they do with it? They hid it. They would hide it in a special place so that it could never be taken away. You know, that's what the scripture is picturing for us as far as my life with Christ. It's hidden in Christ. And the power and the authority of Jesus Christ is behind my eternal security, my relationship with God. That's what I'm to keep as a perspective. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, wait a minute, if I'm looking at my life and I'm saying, hey, as, as, as long as I'm saved, I can go and do whatever I want to do. That's not what this is communicating. What it's talking about is the importance of understanding that and remaining true to Christ because of all that he's done for us. We get back to that idea of gratitude. I have to be grateful for my standing in Christ, the fact that I am hidden in him. And I am to live a priority system that reflects that, responds to that. That's what the Word of God is telling us. John wrote in his gospel, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God the Father, God the Son, making the promise that he holds us secure in him, according to this passage of Scripture. So that's our motivation, to look to the things above. The great Greek scholar, Dr. A.T. Robinson, and by the way, I have his uh, Greek manual. It's about that thick. <laughs> And this little nugget is buried in that huge manual. And this is what it says. So here we are in Christ who is in God. And no burglar, not even Satan himself, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful truth? We're held by Christ. Something that is ongoing forever. We've been hidden. Last thought as we come to verse 4. Verse 4 shares with us the promise of the hope of his appearing. What's my motivation in th seeking the things above? I am promised the hope of Christ's appearing. You know, for some, there's so much controversy around the timing of the Lord's return that we just avoid 
thinking about it or discussion about it because there's so much controversy surrounding it. How unfortunate. When I read the New Testament, I see passage after passage after passage that makes that a focus, that Jesus Christ is risen, seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's coming again. And I am to look to his appearing. That is to be something that motivates me to live for God. You know, when I was in school, the teacher would leave the classroom for a bit, and the novice teachers would always say, I'll be back in five minutes. For four minutes and 45 seconds, bedlam. And then the last 15 seconds, you know, sitting at our desks, ready to learn. If the teacher said, I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming back, but I'll be back, it put the fear of our teacher in us, <laughs> and we didn't know when she might return, so we behaved ourselves. You know, that's a principle that I think we see in Scripture. We don't know when Christ will return. And so I have a limited window as to how long I have on this earth before Christ returns. That's a perspective that I need to keep. But in addition to that, I am looking to my Savior's return where the unseen will be seen and that transforms the way I conduct myself. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, the Word of God shares this with us. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Isn't that a great hope that we have? To see Jesus face to face. But look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. By focusing on the return of Christ, I am setting my mind on the things above where my Lord is going to leave the side of the Father and come back to this earth as he promised. The Word of God shares this hope with us again and again and again. That's to be our focus. Am I living in a way that reflects that hope and that belief in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I focusing on heavenly things? Or have I, I become distracted and bogged down by the things of this world, the things of this earth, that take my eyes off of those things? Focus. It's essential. Let me encourage you this morning. Do some self-evaluation. I don't know you. I'm not... The pastor, and by the way, Rob doesn't share with me stories about problem congregants or anything like that. I have no preconceived notions about you except what I've experienced, and what I've experienced is a loving, kind, sweet church that Paula and I look forward to coming uh, to and fellowshipping with all the time. But let me say this. I don't care who we are, even a pastor, we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, have I been seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Have I set my mind on things above? 
Am I resting in the fact that my salvation rests in Jesus? Or am I trying to earn God's favor by the things that I do rather than responding in gratitude to God and saying, God, here, I love you and I want to serve you. I'm looking to the things above. Think about these things today. Evaluate where you stand and where repair needs to be made. You can repair it. Yield it to God. Ask God to change your perspective, to change your focus, and he promises that he will. May God richly bless you all.